0: We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to today's episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. Laugh for me, LB. And I am here. You knew it was coming. Oh, man. Gets them every time, folks. Gets them every time. And I'm here with my illustrious co-founder and co-host.
1: I am Lawrence Brown, otherwise known as LB, your executive reading and
0: research coach. I'm bringing it to uh, old school. Hello, LB. Oh, boy, taking it back to the <laughs> beginning. <laughs> taking it back to the beginning. So this is going to be a different sort of show that we're going to do today. We are, and I still can't believe it, we are winding down season one. What we're going to do in this episode is basically recap some of the key moments with uh, the guests that came on our show. I think... Uh, I think it's pretty interesting that we made as much ground as we did in the short amount of time. What's, what's your take on this whole experience?
1: I think it's pretty amazing when, you know, how we, I think most people that have been watching the show know this, that this started with a conversation right over. We've had a lot of conversations talking about how much we wanted to help impact the, the careers of others, combining with what our, what our experiences have been from a sales and organizational effectiveness perspective has been, and really just being able to help people move their careers further faster and help them to identify some of the key codes. And so many of our guests have helped us to do that as well. So it's been a great partnership.
0: The conversations in and of themselves have been uh, a lot of fun to do, learned a ton from it. What's interesting about when I look back at, hey, What have we learned so far? What does season two look like? And how did our experiences through the course of season one shape what season two is gonna look like? It's been a pretty interesting learn on the fly exercise. We covered a lot of different topics, a lot of different areas throughout the first 40 or so episodes. And when you say that out loud, LB, you've seen that, seen the data on it. There's over 2 million podcasts. And in less than half a year, we've cranked out 40 episodes covering any number of topics. And even in the beginning, you and I are at the same page that if we can get 10 people to listen every week, we'd be happy. It's odd to me to think about the impact that we've had so far, and we're not even scratching the surface.
1: It does speak to what we... we. I don't know that we, know, we knew that we would have nearly 2,000 downloads in such a short period of time, but I do think that It lives into what we thought that people would want to listen to what we had to say and to the guests that we brought on because everyone is trying to move ahead. At least I think that the listeners that we have managed to glean care about their careers and care about, like you said, we've hit a couple of different areas. We talk about diversity, equity, inclusion space. We've talked about process, both from a sales standpoint, from an organizational standpoint. We've talked about non nonprofits, how to integrate such leaders who have shared with us what their kind of what their cheat codes have been for them to get to where they are. And I think that all of those areas are areas that people, care about, want to be a part of. We've talked several times, several different ways about the triple bottom line and not shying away from the idea and notion that profit has to be first. And so I think that's resonated across the board. And I think you would call this out early on, which is one of the reasons that we're even doing the not as an element is not profits to be profitable is still important for them as well, whatever that currency may be. Sometimes it is the actual dollar. Sometimes it's about their brand and access and connection. And so we've just, I think we've learned a lot ourselves, which I think is really super cool. I feel we're cheating, right? We're talking about helping with the cheat codes, but we're learning so much from so many people.
0: One of the things to call out as we're reflecting on where the show came from is that we've had great guests on, and they're all like normal folks. And that was one of the other unstated objectives of the show is that everybody talks about Bill Gates or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos and measures their individual achievements against that. And I think that's toxic. Philosophically, I think you should just be in a race against yourself and getting better each day by bringing on guests who are highly successful, in their careers and normalizing or at least reframing what success looks like for the average person. I think that's an important part of the mission too. We obviously want to help people move their careers further faster. That is the stated objective of the show. And we're going to spotlight certain demographics in our effort to do it. But by and large, one of the other key things that we wanted to accomplish is reframe how people are evaluating success. When you talk about our first guest, And he set a high bar. We had James Daverman on the show, and he's currently in a financial role at Ross Retail. That was a fun episode. That was a fun couple of episodes. What were the big things that stood out to you in our conversations about James?
2: You've known me long enough to know that I love going on these rants about the way that limited thinking inhibits our opportunities. It's hard to already take an objective look at yourself and your capabilities. But you have to have an uncompromising faith in yourself to know that there are environments beyond what you're living in and you can reach them. Now, one of the issues we have with limited thinking is the fact that if we don't see enough people look look like us doing something, we don't really imagine that it's possible or we don't imagine that it's within the realm of possibility. And that's probably one of the hardest habits that we we have to break. I think there are two traits that can easily be developed in any individual that will get the ball rolling for you. The first is you have to enjoy learning just for the sake of it. And so that's when you find people who may have an interesting or appealing background, and then you just soak up the knowledge right then and there. You can't be afraid to ask for help if you're intellectually curious. And I always tell people, in some people, it's very innate. But in others, I I like to say, if you're ever reading an article and you say to yourself, this is interesting, don't stop there. Do a deeper dive. Spend a weekend on Wikipedia, just clicking additional links on a topic you're interested in. And the next thing you know, you'll be immersed in it. Just having that curiosity is what opens you up to connecting with people. And in my case, having also worked in sales, I knew what the steps were in terms of building rapport and, and opening people. I see a potential community whenever I make a connection with someone. I see a, p- a potential means of support and vice versa. And of course, I'll do what I can for them. I always you know, pay it forward. The second thing that I think you need to have is you have to be willing to embrace the unfamiliar. We get settled into our routines fairly quickly. The human brain is adaptable. And so there's resistance there when the possibility of blowing up your whole life and starting over or making a major move, or, there's always an apprehensiveness and an anxiety there. But as you do it more and more often, you embrace the unfamiliar. That opens you up to learning. You can learn from anyone. You're willing to be in environments that you're not accustomed to. You're willing to stretch yourself. You're willing to engage with folks. And once you have that comfort with the unfamiliar, and, and then you, you take those two things and you add a dose of humility on top of it, people are generally warm. If-
1: yeah, I would say for me, what stands out is that his absolute, I think his intentionality and resilience. Where the two aside from the fact that the man is brilliant. I think that I think that he's that blend of where we've talked about this, oftentimes I think you and I probably one on one is that he's a person obviously of high IQ, but he's also a person of high EQ. And so that ability to blend the two, he's naturally curious, intellectually curious. And then with those those droplets of humor as well, because you talk about these different elements around leadership, right? And he's definitely that person that is what I would consider to be a transformational leader, having having the charisma, having concern for the people that he works with. And really remember he, he set out plan and will probably sound like a broken record in some instances with some of these because We found that these different elements around intentionality and resilience has become a recurring theme. And I think to your point, it shows that you don't have to be these glorified versions of what it is to be an entrepreneur, glorified perspectives of what it is to be a leader. And I think James was a, he was a great start to, and I think you're right. I think he did set the bar high for what was to come.
0: When we think about the big lessons that came from James's conversation, what stands out to me is his whole concept of winning the day. His life is basically a definition of winning the day. You have a poor kid from New York, from the, single parent household and all that sort of stuff. And you fast forward a number of years, he's a tuck graduate, been at some of the biggest labels in senior financial roles throughout his career. And now he's not that far off of the CFO track. So that's a pretty cool story to tell. Later on in the season, we had our first attempt at a panel conversation and we had Scott Galanos and And Adam Chandler. And again, that was one of those good conversations. I think we were responding to some of the challenges in the marketplace where you have clinical healthcare professionals who are in leadership roles, can't find enough people. And we figured we'd bring two leaders to the show to talk about their experience and share some tips on how you can recruit more effectively. It was pretty interesting in listening to the conversation, and it has some implications in terms of some of the work that you and I both do, where from their perspective, they're seeing employers do a lot of the things that actually exclude people from applying or being put in the workforce. So, that's one of the things
3: that stood out in that conversation. There is this thing called the great resignation. I don't want to deny or ignore that because we've been the victims of it, even at our own organization, people planning, leaving, finding other ways to put food on the table, but they're they're tired. Uh, and I think COVID had a lot to do with that. There's a, an exit effect that starts with a few and as a few leave, all that work has to be piled on to somebody else. And next thing. You're in our space, a home health nurse who went from four visits a day to eight visits a day. And then you got to get home and do your documentation. And, and I don't want to get into the ugly details. I'm just trying to give you the, the day in the life of what our critical mass is going through. So the resignation is happening. And people I think are looking for just a break, a lifestyle where they don't have to get up every morning and it's Groundhog Day and go through, you know, the same heavy lifting. But I think what we're seeing more of is not so much resignation, but the great need for flexibility, because there is still a mass population of clinicians, at least in in our space, that loves taking care of patients. They love nursing. They love social work. They love physical therapy. They love being a home health aide, but they want to do it on their own terms,
4: when I was talking to Jim uh, last week, I just got done reading a book called Think Again by Adam Grant, and it talks about people or companies that they do things because it's always the way that um, it's been done, and and that's just where they're stuck at. And so now we're in this great rethink and great revamp. And COVID was an accelerator for a lot of companies. It's just not healthcare. It's every industry. How are we hiring? How are we attracting talent? And more importantly, how are we retaining that talent as well? From a personal perspective, at Addison, we became a flexible hybrid workshop. And it's our employee reviews have skyrocketed. Our retention has skyrocketed. So I I see it in my own company and with companies that I work with. That shift happened and it was accelerated because of the pandemic. They talked about the things that
1: I think corporations are getting wrong, but they also talked about ways to to get it right. And I think both Scott and Adam had, from a different vantage point in a similar industry, talked about the ways that you could be more effective. And they both shared, I think, a couple of uh, examples where you have to center around the employee. I think it was Adam who talked about how they made adjustments as a result of COVID, for example and meeting the needs of their folks to be able to continue to be successful as they adapted. And yep. then when Scott was saying more from a recruitment standpoint, being able to identify people who could be successful in the system. And so I think that those were the two elements that stood out for me with, uh, with, those, with those. As far
0: as the panel format, I think that's something that we're going to come back to. And then we had two episodes with uh, with Sarah Odess of uh, Jones Lang LaSalle and that was that was a couple of killer conversations. And I think the biggest thing with Sarah, here you have somebody that grew up in a small town and basically in her in the world around her, you had basically two options which you and I can certainly relate to. You either go work at the factory or you become a teacher. And that's consistent across a lot of the guests that we talk about where they're brought into a world where the options are limited and they figure out a way to to go a different path and become highly successful. And we start seeing these patterns over and over again throughout the course of the show where people just figure out a way. I,
5: I don't think it was intentional for her to position herself as a role model for my career, to be honest. My mom is the oldest daughter of six siblings. And I think from a very young age had to be a leader uh, amongst her peers and had to take that type of a role in every situation that she was in her entire life. She fell into education. It was a natural path for her. A lot of her peers probably became teachers and she had a passion for that administrator position. She got a master's degree, which was unique for her generation as well as females, I think, in from her background. I, I, I just see my mom as somebody who always pursued more. And although she stayed in the same career and worked for the same diocese, she was in a, a Catholic school her entire career. She stayed there for 30 plus years. I don't know that my mom would have described herself as a career-driven person, but her example alone intentionally or unintentionally did form what i what i could see for myself as possible i i saw her in a leadership position i saw her command an audience whether it be the the students or a, a group of parents it didn't matter who she was in front of my mom at the the raise of a hand or the the look in her eye create a direction for a massive amount of people and that to me was it was so powerful to watch her do that. And I thought that she was just the ultimate powerful person that I I got to watch every single day because I went to school with her. So I got to see her in action in those large groups of people all the time. In reflecting on those women. I worked for three different. COEs and three different women leaders in those spaces. And I learned something different from each of them. I think from Angela, who was the one who hired me into Kellogg in the first place, she's the one who said, throw up your hand, say yes, bounce around as much as you're comfortable from one place to the next. And then I hopped around from project to project, with Stephanie and Shannon, and I think two women. Stephanie taught me how to um, what it looks like to be a leader who's very empathetic. That's very buzz right now—an empathetic leader. Before that was ever a term that we used. She met you where you were, and I think that that's something I've taken and held on to as an example of what the type of leader I want to be. And then I worked with Shannon for just a brief period of time when I was in that leadership development space. Well, she talked about her life, where she came from. She. She happened to be an alpaca farmer on the side. And it was just interesting because I think for the, she was probably the first one that I worked for who I knew on a personal level. And up until that point in my career, I thought it was very, you came to work and you compartmentalized everything. There were
1: a number of things that stood out for me with Sarah was the idea around, she had established that her parents were huge supporters of what she wanted to accomplish and really helping her to set the standard that she was not going to just wind up being, and it's not to say that to, to work in the professions or fields, but they wanted something different for her that wasn't, that was different from the way that, that was similar to the way that they had, they had grown up. And she talked about her mom being a woman that was a pillar in the community. And that was a great, that was a great blueprint for her and how her dad supported her. I think, if I remember correctly, she was saying she was at a party or something and they were asking what she was going to do next. And it was actually her dad that answered the question like, no, she's going to go do. It. X, Y, Z, there were some, I wouldn't say bumps in the road, but some changes, some modifications because she was her intent to go down and to go into academia and then having the opportunity at Kellogg. She decided to take that. And I think she had also said that she took the path less traveled. Everything was a little bit later. And I think that was an important call out for people to hear because later doesn't mean that it was necessarily delayed. It was just a different path that she decided to take. And as she said, that he, it's all worked out where she's heading up learning and development at, at an amazing company. And she and I think that she also was pretty straightforward about her career as a woman and some of the things that she's had to navigate as far as that goes as well.
0: There are so many great takeaways from Sarah's conversation. And, and we kept that theme going in the story that we shared with Mary Beth Achterberg, who's the VP of service delivery in IT at Molson Coors. So here we have, actually not a friggin' unicorn in the space. You have a woman in senior leadership in tech. So women in senior leadership in and of itself is pretty rare as yeah. it is. And women in senior leadership in technology is super rare. And then when you put it in context, what stood out about the conversation with Mary Beth is that she was iterating through this throughout her career in an era where the employment landscape was not friendly to women at all. You can make the argument that it's still not friendly, but this is a completely different era. And in spite of all of that, she rose to the top through performance and execution and excellence. And that that in and of itself was a great story too, especially when you factor in the fact that her experience growing up, her parents were like preacher's family and, and the goal was to go to college and find a husband. And she obviously didn't go that route is there there had a vision for herself that, hey, I want to do something else and I want to do something more. And you fast forward and you see somebody at the highest levels of leadership in one of the best known brands in the world. So that right there is, is another
6: inspirational story. So I really grew up predominantly with my two brothers, one older, one just 18 months younger. In a family where my dad was an engineer and my mother was a stay-at-home housewife, it's interesting when I talk to her about what her career aspirations were, she always says that's what I wanted to do. I was introduced in this world with uh, a curious mind and always questioning why, which really consternated a lot of people because I grew up in a very traditional household. I think that's what my parents thought that is what my aspiration should have been. And in fact, they required that I go to a, a Christian school In Texas, and I I think in their mind it was that I would find a husband and become a pastor's wife, which really wasn't a good idea, but it really wasn't what uh, I was designed to be. That wasn't what my aspirations were. And having a strong female voice in the 60s, 70s, and 80s wasn't always respected. So the fact that I was the way I was, that I always wanted to know why, which really bothered a lot of my male teachers. I often wonder as people see me now that I'm in this corner office, that they think I'm an untouchable and it should be exactly the opposite. Where I came up, the struggles I had, I was a single parent for 14 years, raising my daughter while I went to school and worked full time. I was on AFDC for a little while while she was a, a baby. What I tell people when I'm talking to them, and I'm talking to all of you now, whoever's listening, is don't let those small things keep you from fulfilling your purpose. Because those are small things. When, if I use the example of a fine Persian rug, if you pulled that back off and looked at the back of a Persian rug, you'd see all these knots and threads and ugliness. But you flip it over, and if you use it as a metaphor for your life, it's absolutely beautiful. But along the way, it doesn't look so great. So I think. Don't discount people just because you encounter them at a certain point in their life and you think it's an untouchable person. It's quite opposite. I think they're used to not having people approach them. People don't want to approach me, but I think it's really, there's a story to tell and you should learn the story first. So whenever you're an employee, whether you're contracted in, as a consultant or employed on a W-2, you first have a responsibility to deliver results. So I make sure that wherever I'm working, they realize I'm going to deliver the results. I'm going to do the things that you need me to do. Because what that does in my mind, and hopefully in the employer's mind, is gain trust that, look, this person can actually do the job. And it should then open the opportunity for me to provide insight, input, new thought. This doesn't work quite well because, can we look at it and, and think about adding a a capability, doing an assessment. We need to dig in. It's not quite working. I also am a real proponent of making sure that you measure because you can have a hypothesis and it might be wrong. And yeah, I've got a lot of experience and I have, frankly, and my boss today, a a lot of respect for my knowledge. So that's helpful. But I don't want to create a hypothesis and expect him just to believe me. I want to go in there with data to say, this is my hypothesis. This is what I've observed. This is the data that proves that it's. I'm probably right. And here's the change that I recommend we make. So it's really about being a trusted advisor on top of delivering results. And so your first responsibility, regardless of how you're engaged with an organization, is to deliver the results that they Asked you to do.
1: The key takeaway for me with Mary Beth was the force that she is, and I think that she recognizes being that force and recognizing the what her what she felt like her responsibility was. And I frame it that way for for this reason. She took the responsibility to say that she knew what her experience had been as a woman in the corporate sector, and and made the effort to help to uplift other women that were experiencing some of those similar sorts of circumstances. And the reason that I framed it that way is that I think that it's great that she did that. But I think as we are talking about women in the workplace, there has to be that responsibility where allyship does that as well, where men have to actually step in and be responsible for doing a lot of that. And so I commend her and other women that make the decision because while I know it is the right thing to do, Oftentimes, it's put on them. That's what they should be doing. And I think that she was clear about, she knew what she had experienced and she knew that she would be able to help others navigate the landmines. And she, I think if I remember correctly, she talked about like a idea or a concept that she had done and somebody else had taken credit for it. And I think that's something that we all can learn from the way that she handled that in an eloquent way. And it didn't, she didn't make the decision to burn the bridge. She did address it. But she did it in such an eloquent way that she was still able to continue to attain her brand. And so that's something, again, I think that we all can learn from because, quite frankly, you're pretty upset when when someone does that. I think what comes to mind for me when I think about her is like a master strategist in her, yeah. in her career and helping others.
0: And pretty disciplined, too, because I, I think I referenced it when we were having that conversation. I would have burned the place down if somebody stole my idea. <laughs> but that's the difference between... Hair on Fire, Jim, and Cool as a Cucumber, Mary Beth. One of the things that's interesting that came out of that show is that when we look forward into season two, we have quite an emphasis on women in technology, and that's going to lead into a panel discussion as well. So Mary Beth, go figure. Shocker. She has spent her career trailblazing, and now she came on our show and gave us an idea of how we can actually advance The goal and the initiative of having more women be exposed to leadership and technology. So that was pretty cool. Now, after that show, we had our first foray across the pond and we talked with Omar of Trainio. So he is one of the founders of Trainio, which is a sales training organization. And it's a startup. So it was the first innovators and disruptors startup episode that we did. And that That's actually continued and continuing later on in the season and in the season two. But what's interesting about their mission is that their goal is to expand access to sales roles in the technology space. And it's a really interesting mission because when we think about the technology sales space, and I actually happen to be in that space, and I've spent quite a bit of time in that space throughout my career, it tends to be pretty monochrome. And what Omar observed, and this was part of the impetus for him to start a traino, was there's all sorts of underrepresented communities that don't even get the opportunity to enter the space because the recruiting and hiring process is designed in a way where it excludes people without degrees and without a level of education to come into the space. And especially when you think about it from a sales context, a degree doesn't mean anything in terms of your ability to connect and relate to a potential customer and understand their problem. So that was a pretty interesting show. And it was a nice first foray into, into sort of establishing the international wing of our of the stories that we
7: tell. And I've been quite lucky that I've maybe been, I've been confident, right? I've been able to go out there and, and see the world. But I think one of the big things for me is seeing how opportunities aren't fair for everyone. Then the, the playing field isn't level at the moment. Growth I grew up and I've seen that. A lot of your success is based on how ultimately the success and wealth of your parents dictates your success. And and, and I don't believe that's inherently fair. I've seen a lot of different industries and a lot of different places, I've gone all around the world as well. And and I've seen a lot of things, and, and that one thing is always consistent. And I think for me, that's the big driver, right? Your success should not depend on your parents' success, it shouldn't depend on where you've come from. Everyone should have knowledge of the same opportunities. Everyone should have the same access to everything. There's a lot of companies that say they're going to get people from different backgrounds into tech, and, and that's their mission. They're going to train them for free. But ultimately, what we saw a lot of them doing was they were charging people, right? So what you're doing is you're getting people who are already in disadvantaged situations. You're putting them through a program, and then you're getting a job, but then you're putting them, continuing to keep them in that dog situation. How long is that going to take you to get out of there? So we said, we always said our model is going to be completely different. Like you imagine coming to a 20-year-old Omar and telling me, I'm going to get your job, but you're going to have to pay me 30 grand once you're done. Like I'm broke and you're going to make me more broke going out. How am I going to live? How am I going to pay my bills and my, my rent? Like you're, you're just in, a, in an even more sticky situation. So we always said we were going to do things completely differently. Like we truly want to get people from different backgrounds into the tech space, not just ethnicity and gender, but socioeconomic. I've got a big affinity for for the working class and trying to shift that class system, as well. So we will never charge the students any amount of money. I think that is wrong. It's predatory and it's not fair and it's massively misleading as well. I don't think companies should work with training programs that are charging their students obscene amounts of money. so Omar definitely to me represented
1: it represents what they're trying to do and what they're doing at, at Trainio is that is innovation, right? Like I think that. It's really turning it on its ear. I think that he identified, he and his team identified a gap and they are exploiting the gap. And I I think that it's awesome. There's a couple of different ways that they're angling. And so I think a lot of this addresses generational biases too. I don't know that we talked about that directly, but I think that when you look at everybody wants to do it the way that it's always been done, that generally tends to be the boomer generation and the next generation it's the millennial gen z gen alphas that are flipping the paradigm on its on its side so to speak in that they are pushing the envelope for this whole idea of why can't we do it that way why can't we have that innovation and i I think you have people right now i think that he called this out that have all of the skill sets that you would need that you would want to not only do well but thrive oh but you don't have a degree and i think that there, there have to be ways that look at really different some people are some people choose not to go and get a degree but they are folks that have the ability to to code to sell to do whatever it is that their pursuits will and i think about it to learn has a very different dynamic as well. i think he also talks about that so yeah someone that I think was fun to talk to because he has like a ball of energy and has all these amazing ideas that I feel confident he's going to do
0: really well. The other thing to take away from it, it's not just a dynamic that's unique to sales. We have it across multiple functions where hiring managers are looking at degree as a qualifier to even have a conversation. And when you think about how that flows down to recruiting, the hiring landscape is set up in such a way Where everybody's screaming about, oh, we can't find anybody. And my question is, and I've been on the hiring and recruiting side where I've actually presented candidates who have actually executed from an outcomes perspective what a client is looking for, but they don't even get a conversation because whoever the gatekeeper is says, this person doesn't have the piece of paper that we want them to have. So we're not going to talk to them. And I think that's not to be too bold, but I think that's freaking ass You see it in marketing. You see it in sales. You see it in technology. Like some of the best marketers I know in my network that have the most active and engaged communities don't have a marketing degree. They have a degree in something else. And how many of those people are you losing from a hiring perspective or ignoring from a hiring perspective, not just sales, but in any function because you're not looking at the outcome. You're looking at these check-the-box criteria that doesn't really mean it. So pretty interesting conversation with, with Omar. Tune in next time for more great moments
3: from Season 1 of Cascading Leadership.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook